Elias, have you sent your first Zeet yet? Do you even know what that is? No, I refuse to engage with this. Zeet, it's the way you tweet. It's no, you know, they're tweets. from the company they're called tweets, X. Mike. They're just tweets. They're no. just always going to be tweets for you. Not t- Zeets, retweets. No, I can't even keep it straight. Tweets. It's Zeeting X, which is the company. So if people don't know, Elon Musk decided to change the name of Twitter to X randomly for whatever reason, even though I think every other big tech company has X trademarked and there will be lawsuits. He'll probably change it back to Twitter or something else. And now tweets are called Zeets. X-E-E-T. So yeah, we're, we're all Zeeting and re-Zeeting. But I think this will drive... Maybe this will be... Is this the last thing that'll keep people from just deciding that they're going to leave Twitter? They're out. It's the final shoe. It's so frustrating, right? Because I keep wanting to leave Twitter and go somewhere else, but there still isn't a good alternative. Nobody's been able to compete. It's so frustrating. I want to go to Blue Sky. I want to go to Mastodon. But even Twitter in its current degraded form, and note that I called it Twitter, continues to still be the best option. It's true. Everyone is still there saying they're going to leave. They're not. They're still checking. They're leaving. They're coming back. They'll be there complaining about everything, but they'll still be there. It's my favorite car crash to keep watching. It is fascinating, slightly depressing, and who knows where this story will end. It's Elon's world. We're just living in it, Mike. Oh, that. Anyways, thanks for joining us again, Elias Scroll, senior editor from CyberScoop. We're going to be talking about AI. We're going to talk to a fascinating guy named Troy Hunt, who's an Australian. He started a website that will tell you if you've been hacked or not something everyone should check. And if people like this podcast, they can rate us on whatever podcast platform they listen to, and they can even reseed us at cyberscoop.com on Twitter slash X slash whatever it becomes next. My ears are bleeding. Like It hurts to say, but someone had to say it. Welcome to Safe Mode. I'm Mike Farrell, Editor-in-Chief at Cyberscoop. Every week, we break down the most pressing issues in technology, provide you the knowledge and the tools to stay ahead of the latest threats, and take you behind the scenes of the biggest stories in cybersecurity. This episode is brought to you by Google Cloud. An attack is coming. It's about keeping us safe. He's just a disgruntled hacker. She's a super hacker. Stay alert. Stay safe. Stay safe. This is Safe Mode. So, Elias, I know one story you've been tracking for some time now is the whole discussion around artificial intelligence, this rapid advancement around generative AI, which most people encounter when they use something like ChatGPT from a company called OpenAI. And there's just a lot of, I don't know, anxiety around the technology in Washington. People want to do something. Policymakers want to enact something. There's legislation being floated, regulations being floated. And then we saw this meeting that happened at the White House where Biden got a lot of the leaders of some of the AI startups, as well as the big tech companies, basically to agree that they're going to produce AI in a safe way. Tell us about that meeting and 
Is that all we need? Just sort of a handshake and for Meta and Google say, yeah, we'll do all this stuff and it'll be completely fine. No one needs to worry. Yeah, it's a fascinating moment in DC for AI regulation right now, to put it mildly. So Friday, the heads of the big AI players, the leading AI labs in the US, which is Amazon, Anthropic, Google, Inflection, Meta, Microsoft, and OpenAI. And Microsoft and OpenAI, we can kind of consider one unit in this conversation, given the fact that Microsoft has put huge amounts of money into the company. And what they're saying is they're going to commit to these safety guidelines. They're going to ensure that their products are safe before they uh, roll them out. They're going to prioritize security in their development practice. They're going to commit to technical mechanisms to ensure that users know when they're interacting with AI content, like watermarking systems. And this is a measure of self-regulation. And critics of the tech industry are, on the one hand, encouraged that these companies are signing up to some kind of protection. But then on the other hand, they're also saying self-regulation just isn't enough to regulate big tech players. And so what this really is, is a first shot at Washington's attempt to control or regulate or shape this new industry. And whether it's going to take root or not, I think is, is very much to be seen. But it's a statement of intent from the Biden administration. They want to be seen as being out front and being aggressive on this. But they also don't have a great deal of statutory powers that they can use in these cases. And so voluntary commitments at this point in time is kind of the best that they can do. So the Europeans are taking a completely different approach to this, correct? They're not like leaving it up to the tech companies to basically say, yeah, we'll do it. We'll regulate ourselves. We'll agree to doing it in ways that are safe and protect data and protect privacy and adhere to best practices around security standards. Their approach is like, we want to pass strong regulations or they're working toward that. I mean, I wouldn't say that it's a completely different approach. It's a so-called risk-based approach where the higher risk the application is, the greater the safeguards are going to be. And in certain narrow applications, the use of AI is just entirely banned. So for example, the EU AI Act bans the use of real-time facial recognition in camera surveillance systems, bans the use of social credit scoring systems. And then in other applications that are still deemed high risk, like employment decisions, asylum decisions, border control, there's going to be a legal regime in place to scrutinize these applications before they're rolled out. And then in applications that are deemed low risk, there's going to be far fewer regulations in place. So you've heard American regulators and lawmakers speak pretty positively about this so-called risk-based approach. And so it might be the case that the U.S. ends up adopting something similar. What I do think it's important to note is that the Europeans are way out ahead on this issue and way further along. The EU parliament has passed this act and it's now out for negotiations in this Byzantine European process for passing legislation. But just as the Europeans were way more aggressive on regulating privacy online and the collection of personal data through things like the GDPR, the Europeans are again way out ahead on AI and are writing the rules 
for companies that are American, but have significant presence in the EU. So for example, right, the global social media industries, the search business is dominated by these American companies, but it's EU regulations that are arguably the most influential in shaping how the global tech sector operates. So we're seeing that dynamic play out again with the EU AI Act. So around risk in AI, how do you even begin to measure what risk looks like when AI companies themselves are saying, we don't even fully understand what some of the dangers could be? I know the company Anthropic that is getting a lot of attention, testifying at Congress this week, is saying they're trying to take this very cautious approach to developing their AI tools, but ultimately they're not 100% sure how these things could be used. Yes. So I think first off, to, to answer the first part of that question, I think it has a lot to do with applications and how AI is rolled out and ends up being used. In the AI industry writ large today, there's a lot of, for lack of a better term, catastrophizing, where you see statements from leading AI researchers that say, we need to deal with AI on the same level as nuclear weapons because AI poses this extinction risk. But then you have regulators who are looking at AI applications being rolled out today and who aren't really particularly concerned about the so-called extinction risk and are much more worried about how AI is actually being used today. And it's that understanding of AI risk that's driving things like the European approach. So for the Europeans, it's all, all about the context in which it's being applied. So for example, employment decisions, border controls, provision of public benefits. The idea is that AI algorithms that are used in these contexts are going to be fair and not biased or that they don't perpetuate prejudices that already exist in society. So in the same way that, say, a border control officer might be racially prejudiced against a person of color showing up at a border or trying to claim asylum, that these conceptions of bias and race aren't reproduced in AI algorithms. And I think it's worth mentioning that the AI regulation era is being shaped by a generation of regulators who came of age during the social media era in which social media companies were allowed to operate essentially unfettered and were able to roll out products without much consideration for the safety risks. And without a consideration for the safety risks, you saw things like information operations online, political manipulation at a large scale, the ongoing mental health crisis among teens, right? And so what regulators want to try to prevent is a repeat of that era where AI is being rolled out again without a consideration of the safety consequences. Yeah. And the bigger question is, which we could go on and talk about forever, is will lawmakers, policymakers ever get to a point where they can effectively regulate technology before it has these consequences, right? I mean, we're so far down the road with social media, so far down the road with smartphones and everything, the huge impact that technology is having in our daily lives, it's, you can't put it back. Well, I think one of the things that's really interesting with these AI companies is that many of the founders themselves and the engineers working on these issues are extremely safety conscious. They're thinking about these 
products through a lens of risk in a way that social media companies and engineers working on those products really weren't. And I think it's worth emphasizing the impact that the effective altruism movement has had on these companies. When you talk to folks working at AI companies, you see these effective altruism adherents all over the place. Effective altruism has a bit of a bad name right now because Sam Bankman-Fried was maybe its most famous proponent. And the idea behind effective altruism is that when you have a set of money and you're making big money in the tech industry or any other industry for that matter, you should try to do the greatest amount of good possible with the resources that you have on hand. And that's led a lot of folks to conclude that they should be working on issues of existential risk, whether that is climate change or the extinction risk posed by AI. And so they're bringing this mindset of trying to address big picture issues of risk to humanity to bear on rolling out these AI models. I think that's a fundamental difference in the culture of the tech industry today compared to 2008, when the internet was supposed to basically set the world free. It was going to usher in a new era of democratization. And today you have folks who are shaping these products who think they might lead to human extinction. Those are two completely opposite perspectives on how to do product development. Yeah, and how you reconcile one person who might be thinking in a very altruistic, the other person who's got to say, well, this product needs to make money. And then you layer that on top of the other people who are in the tech industry who are changing Twitter into X and calling tweets Zeets and probably don't really care about all the things you just talked about. I would say this is a, I, you're going to keep talking about this and go ahead. I want, I want to hear your final thought, Elias <laughs> Roll. <laughs> well, I think it's going to be really interesting to see who, who ends up dominating the field of AI, right? And who builds the killer app in AI that actually makes money. Right now, we're all obsessed with ChatGPT and ChatGPT is getting rolled into loads of different consumer products. But it's unclear at this point what the winning business model in AI is going to be. And is the winning business model in AI also going to be an AI that is safe? Or is it going to be one that has very few constraints on it and kind of does whatever you want? If you ask it to give you a recipe for how to make ricin in your kitchen, is it going to produce for you a good answer? That's an extreme example, but you get the idea here where it might not be the case that the so-called safest AI model is the one that also ends up being the most commercially successful one. And I think that's why folks in government are quite encouraged by the voluntary commitments that we saw on Friday from these leading companies. And regulators today, they're also very, many of them anyway, are eager to make the case that AI, in fact, is regulated. There's this idea out there in the culture, I think, right now, or kind of a meme that there are no regulations for AI, which isn't really true. And the FTC, for example, has been very aggressive in saying, no, AI is subject to existing laws. It's subject to truth in advertising. It's subject to consumer harm. And in fact, the FTC is right now has opened an investigation of open AI to see whether ChatGPT has harmed consumers. And so regulators are trying to stake out their territory in this and trying to shape this technology at an early stage. 
And that I think is fundamentally different from the last era of big tech innovation, which I think was the social media era where these technologies were allowed to run free and the belief that they would produce positive results for mankind, uh, society. Mm. And this time around, there's just so much more skepticism. And I don't we're know, seeing I don't that know in these I, types of I voluntary commitments. I don't know. I, I think that... What don't you buy? Wait, what sure, don't you buy? Well, I think that the beginning of the internet was greeted with that same kind of optimism. This is a product that's created for good. This is going to be something that is going to help society, improve society. And then has it or hasn't? It's certainly done some good, some bad. But those people ultimately lose control, right? They create the things and then they're moving them to other people who don't have the same motives or don't have the same belief systems or values that they have. So once you build it, you've got to, you're going to have to let it go. And someone else is ultimately going to control it. I think the difference with the AI era today is, and I'm not saying that the regulatory regimes that are emerging right now are necessarily going to be able to substantively address potential harms, but there's at least an awareness of the need to do so at an earlier point in the development of the technology than we saw with the internet or with social media. Well, I know it's something you'll be tracking closely. So thanks, Elias Grohl senior editor at CyberScoop for joining us on the podcast once again. And you can find Elias, you can find CyberScoop on Twitter, X, or whatever it will be called next week. Thanks, Elias. Thanks, Mike. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Google. Do you want to protect your agency and data from the most sophisticated cyber attacks? Visit cloud.google.com slash security to access resources and expertise to get started today. So we're going to switch gears and we're going to talk to Troy Hunt, who has developed one of what I think is the most useful websites out there. It's called Have I Been Pwned? Pwned is hacker speak for have you been owned? Basically, it's a place you go to figure out if you've been breached, how many times you've been breached, and how bad the breach was. Troy Hunt, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. It's a pleasure to have you with us. I've been a huge fan of Have I Been Pwned for a very long time since I first discovered it. And as many people do when they first discover that there's this tool that can show them how exposed they are, how many breaches they've been a part of, it's always sort of a eye-opening, jaw-dropping experience. So I want to know why you started it. And then, I mean, you, you hear about all these experiences all the time because you, you live it, you see it every day. And, but, and we can get into the things that are surprising you on a daily basis as well. But let's go back to the origin story of Have I Been Pwned? Yeah, well, it's nearly a decade ago now because it was December 2013 that it launched. And the origin story, in a nutshell, was looking in part, I was analyzing lots of data breaches. I saw the Adobe data breach with over 150 million records in it. Found my own data there twice, both my personal account and my work account. Was a bit surprised because as far as I knew, I hadn't given my data to Adobe, but I later realized I gave it to Macromedia because I was a big Dreamweaver user. And then, of course, Adobe bought Macromedia, the data flowed. And I, I thought, look, if I'm surprised to find myself there for both those reasons, then what's it going to be like for other people? You know, they'll be fascinated. And I thought a few of my friends would use it and it would be another failed pet project. And <laughs> now here we are, you know, a decade later. How many users do you have now? 
Depends how we measure it. So I've got a little metric physical counter on my desk. It says we've got four and a half million subscribers who get notifications every time they appear in a data breach. There's around about 200,000 visitors to the service a day. That'll spike at times, I think up to about 10 million is the most we've seen if there's been something a bit crazy happen. But to be honest, it's a little bit hard to tell because then there's a whole bit around domain searches. Then there's a whole bit around previously seen passwords, a service called Pwn Passwords. That's hit about 5 billion times a month at the moment. And then a lot of the data is downloaded and used offline for the password search as well. So I, I don't entirely know. I just know it's used a lot. <laughs> so like like you, right, when I first went on, put my information in there, ran the query, came back with a bunch of things, a lot of things that I didn't even know I had signed up for, yeah, right? Yeah. Or I either forgot I had. And then there are other things like, I know I never was part of this thing. So it just, it goes to show you just how much your information is being shared from one vendor, one company to the next. Yeah. And and hey, that's what's fascinating as well. So I find myself in things that I had completely forgotten about. And one that comes to mind, there was a database called House, H-O-U-S-S-Z, I think. And it was some sort of interior design thing or house thing. And I was like, I loaded the data and it's like, okay, that's it. Job done. I'll go downstairs and relax. And I get an email from myself going, hey, you're in the house data breach. I'm like, what? Like, <laughs> where did that come from? And I pulled the data and it had an IP address in London. And then the date it was from, I went to my trip and everything lined up. So yes, I was in London then. All right, I guess it was me. But to your point about stuff you know you haven't signed up for, it's fascinating the way the data flows because very often I hear from people, like, I have never used this thing. You know, I've never used Adobe. Oh, yes, but you used Macromedia and then they flowed to there. Or you end up with a data aggregator, someone that's taking the data from somewhere else. Or you entered that competition that one time and when you agreed to the terms and conditions, which you didn't read because you're a normal human, they said that they could sell your data to somewhere else. And it's just fascinating to see how far your information flows. So tell me how it works. You are scraping breach sites on the dark web. How are you getting the information that's showing up on the email alerts that I don't want, but I do get? Yeah, well, you know, to be honest, after the initial set of data got loaded, which was obviously the Adobe stuff back in 2013, pretty much every data breach, it's not me going and looking for it or scraping stuff, it's people popping up and going, hey, here's the whatever incident. If I look at my inbox, it's just flooded with submissions of data. And and that's from all sorts of people too. It's from people who are very clearly white hat and got everyone's best interests in mind. It's from people that are exchanging data breaches between themselves Inevitably, some of them are from people who are the first party to the breach, i.e. the ones responsible for it. I try not to ask many questions when those folks pop up. So it's just a very supportive community that's sending information as opposed to me needing to go out and seek it now, which is great. So if you know that you're getting, say, information on a breach that is from somebody responsible for the breach, they want to promote maybe that they've posted this information somewhere or it's out there, are you using that? Are you putting that out there? Or or is there some stuff you're holding back? Well, I I think there's a really interesting question of motive. So why are people doing this? Like what's in it for them? And some people are altruistic. They just have, I guess, a greater good in mind. Inevitably, there are some people that want, I don't know if the notoriety is the right word, if they just want the recognition or they want their name somewhere that gets eyeballs. But there are a bunch of data breaches that haven't been pwned where I'll say that the person that sent this has requested that it be attributed to, quote, name. Now, in cases like that, maybe they're looking for recognition. I certainly never link through to where data is posted if people are selling it or something like that. But if attribution is requested, I put the name there. The challenge then is there have been 
cases in the past where people have asked it to be attributed to a name which which isn't them. And it's like some script kitty hacker handle, right? So, so I can't exactly go through and validate that you are the owner of this handle. It does get a little bit interesting when people do want to, I guess, associate it back to themselves. Over the 10 years that you've been doing this, have you noticed an increase in breaches or a decrease or is it about the same every year? It's interesting because we've got to remember that Have I Been Pwned is just the tip of the iceberg here. So it's data breaches that have happened. It's in the public domain. It's circulated. Someone's picked it up and they've sent it to me. And then everything beneath that tip of the iceberg is all the stuff where we've heard about it in the news, but then the data's never gone out there. Or an organization has been breached, but then they've suppressed it. We, of course, we don't hear about that. And then there's all the ones where we just simply haven't learned about it at all. Yeah, there's a hacker somewhere who's got the data. The organization doesn't know. It's, it's just sitting there somewhere in the background. So the only real lens that we have to go by is that very tip. And the bottleneck with that very tip is, frankly, my man hours, my ability to process and load data. Now I was actually doing some stats yesterday, and, and I think it was something like 78 data breaches in the last 12 months that have been loaded. And then the prior 12 months was something like 82. There was a only 700 million something records loaded in the last year, but one of the prior years was about 2 billion in a year. So it really depends on the nature of the incident and the size of it and my availability to process. Now, that, that's just what we see on Have I Been Pwned. I think as, as an industry, we undoubtedly have more data breaches of greater size because we have more people, more services, more connectivity, more cloud like every single thing that is required in order to make this a bigger industry is there. So it's, we're not getting better at it, <laughs> put it that way. Why not? I mean, people keep getting breached. Companies keep getting hacked. What is preventing us from getting better at it? Because it's a hard problem. So I mean, I'll give you a good example. We've seen lots of data breaches in the last few years related to the whole pipeline of software development, where there'll be a dependency which has got a problem. So, you know, why is this happening? Well, we're using more and more external dependencies because they unburden us as software developers for, from building these from scratch. A cloud made a massive difference to the number of data breaches because suddenly it was so easy to stand up anything. You know, the cost barrier disappeared, the time barrier, the effort barrier, and there's just one little setting, which is the difference between it being private and secure and public and open to everyone. If we look also at the amount of different devices collecting data, I mean, there's data in Have I Been Pwned from talking teddy bears. There's data from children's tablets. There's other research I've done independently, which hasn't necessarily resulted in Have I Been Pwned, but things like children's tracking watches, which capture data, and then they've got egregious security vulnerabilities. We're making very complex ecosystems, partly out of necessity or customer demand, but then also we create this environment where there's more stuff to go wrong. So is the answer just to not collect as much data? <laughs> the infeasibility of that aside, I don't really think that's the problem either. I mean, it's just the necessity of how we live now. I mean, very often we'd say to people, for example, practice data minimization, you know, a good consumer tip. I only provide the data that you need to, to perform your intended task. And then we look at like Australia's had massive data breaches at the end of 2022 that got really big press. You know, one was a telco, they leaked driver's license numbers. Well, you know, you try going along to your telco and saying you want a SIM card, but you're not going to give them your driver's license. You don't get a SIM card. The other one was a, a private health insurer. Leaked a whole bunch of personal data there, including things like claims. You, know, you try withholding that data. It's just not going to happen. I was in the Australian Red Cross Blood Service data breach because I went and donated blood and I filled out my details with a pencil and a piece of paper. I didn't digitize it, but someone took that into the back office and it became digital data. 
So no matter what we try and do, that the nature of the way we live today means that we have a huge amount of data that is digitized, goes into the system, almost certainly on cloud, a lot of it publicly facing. And now here we are a decade later. So pwned is hacker speak for being owned. Correct me if I'm wrong, right? Yeah. For those who don't know. Once you've been owned, once you've found out you've got an alert from Have I Been Pwned, what should you do? What's the first thing that you recommend somebody does with that account or really with their own security online? So for, for every data breach that goes into Have I Been Pwned, there's a set of metadata that describes what was exposed. So inevitably your email address, was it your password as well? The vast majority of data breaches are email address and password. If it is your password, then clearly you want to change that one in the service you've used it on. The vast majority of people out there are reusing that same password across everything else. So now you've got to go through every other point where you've reused that password and change that one as well. And that's a really good time to go and get a password manager and stop reusing your password so that the next time you're in a data breach, you're not going and changing every single thing. It, it then obviously depends on the classes of data. There's a big difference between, say, if your credit card was exposed somewhere okay, you need to cancel your card and get another one, to if you're in the Ashley Madison data breach and everything from your deepest sort of personal fetishes and your sexuality are exposed. You, know, you, you can't get identity theft protection for that and changing your password doesn't help. So you've got to look at what the data breach is, what the classes of data that were exposed and think about how that impacts you personally. Now, I've heard that one security trick is just if security questions are breached, for instance, right? Don't use your actual mother's maiden name. Don't use your real <laughs> pet's name. Make up a birthday. Is that something you would recommend for people? I recommend that. And you've got to remember the lies that you tell. <laughs> so this mm, yeah, is, this is the problem. You can make all this stuff up. The whole point of the security questions is you may be called on it later on. So I, I have a password manager. And in my password manager, I store all of the lies that I tell for security questions. And in fact, I use my password manager to generate a pass phrase. So it'll generate four words. So if it's like, what's your mother's maiden name? Well, it's going to be something weird, but it is something that I could relate to a human if I'm asked, because often security questions are used in that context. Stored in my password manager, if ever get asked, I can pull it up and I can go, yes, my mother's maiden name is, you know, like a car name, then a kind of plant, and then a, the nose of a fish or, you know, whatever else. Right. So, yeah, I mean, that's great advice. So we're still making a lot of the same mistakes Companies are still getting breached. Yeah. People are getting hacked. What is going right in cybersecurity? My car got broken into the other day because I left the door unlocked. <laughs> I left it out the front of our house. I haven't, all sorts of excuses as to why it happened. <laughs> and there was a lot of discussion in the neighborhood because we have a lot of opportunistic theft. And it, each time it turns out to be kids literally just going through, trying the door. And if it's unlocked, they get in and they take your stuff. And if it's not unlocked, well, then they just go onto the next car. And I think it's very analogous to our cybersecurity industry where it is the opportunistic stuff which is impacting people the vast majority of the times. So the bits that are going right is the folks who have a password manager, use strong, unique passwords and turn on multi-factor. They're suddenly not the unlocked cars. They're the folks for whom to have a compromise requires an extraordinarily larger amount of effort than all the other people out there who are proverbially leaving their car doors unlocked. They're using the same password everywhere and it's weak and they don't have multi-factor authentication. I guess to extend that further, if we think about things like a modern device, I've got an iPhone here. I log on with my face. So I didn't have to set up, well, I do have to have a pin because I have to have a fallback position. But for the most part, I just log on by looking at it. That's a lower barrier to entry. I can do this in front of other people and they don't see my pin. 
as soon as I set the device up, it's got full disk encryption. So that happens automatically. I don't have to turn that on manually myself. There's a lot more protections around things like how, in, in Apple's case, your iCloud is protected with multi-factor authentication. They've introduced new things recently to be able to authenticate via things like security keys and actually have end-to-end encryption on it. So there's a lot of stuff here which is happening natively, very often in the background that consumers don't directly see, which has really, really raised the bar and it's made compromise of things like mobile devices a lot harder. Did you get your car back? (laughs) Well, fortunately, I wasn't stupid enough to leave the key there as well. I didn't get the pocket knife back that the guy took and then opened the blade and walked through the open gate in the front of my house, which was the other failing because we just had some new tiles laid and the gate wouldn't close anymore. And suddenly all of this happened on the one night. And again, it's very much like information security where usually you need a series of things to go wrong. And occasionally, like the planets align and they all go wrong at the same time, our mitigating controls, as as we say in security, was I didn't leave the key in the car. The house was locked. I actually have a safe where I have my car keys just in case someone does get through. And it's very much like having a strong and unique password, but also having multi-factor just in case someone gets through that first thing, then they can't get through the next thing. So Have I Been Pwned is not your day job. It's something you do on the side. It's also something that you fund yourself. This is your opportunity to give a pitch, right, (laughs) for why people should support this effort. It's the most time-consuming pet project ever, I think. It was started when I had a day job. I was a software developer at Pfizer back in 2013, and I started this as a fun project. I went independent later on, but mostly funding myself through online training and speaking and workshops. And then Have I Been Pwned has has grown and grown over that time to the point where there there are some revenue streams. It has product placement from 1Password, the password manager, on the website. There are API keys. There are a handful of enterprise-level subscribers that, that pay for access for data for things like identity theft purposes. But, you know, for the vast majority of people, have I been pwned as a, you know, enter your email address for free and sign up for notifications and and that's their exposure to it. And that feels a pretty good balance for me. So I honestly don't normally have stuff to pitch. <laughs> go and use it for well, free. Well, that's good. <laughs> that's great news. Congratulations. Cheers. So before you go, for people listening to this who aren't doing the things that you suggested, password manager, faking their mother's maiden name. If they were to do one thing after they listened to this, what would it be? Go and get a password manager. I have an affiliation to one password, full disclosure. I, I think it's a great password manager. There are other password managers out there as well. But going and getting one and making strong, unique passwords and then using either the browser extension or the native app on your phone to fill those logins in when you go to a website. Someone was chatting to me online yesterday and I said, look, it's really hard when it's you really can't reliably read a URL on a website. Humans are terrible at reading addresses. We can't get that right. So what else can we do? Well, password managers have that URL encoded into your keychain there so that when you go to a website and it's a phishing website and it looks almost exactly like the one you expect to be on, it won't even fill your credentials in unless you're on the right website. So things like that are fantastic. Plus you can share secrets with your family and put your credit card details in there. And then all the lies you've told about your personal knowledge-based authentication data. (laughs) So they're great for a bunch of things. All right, Troy Hunt, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. No problems. Thanks, Mike. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Google. Together, Mandiant with Google Cloud helps public sector organizations become more secure from cyber attacks. Visit cloud.google.com slash security for threat reports, resources, and security best practices. 
Thanks for listening to Safe Mode, a weekly podcast on cybersecurity and digital privacy brought to you by CyberScoop. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and review and share it with your friends, your mom or your dad, because you know they're probably going to get hacked if you don't. To find out more information or to contact me, your host, please visit cyberscoop.com. <laughs>